You know, that um, song that we sung earlier is one of my favorites. I've been wanting to sing that song here for 10 years. Finally, we had an opportunity. A month ago, I told Pastor Evan as we were looking ahead in worship before, before we left to go to Zimbabwe with our daughter and her family for, 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 well, for several weeks. Uh, we, we, we were looking ahead in worship planning, and I said, Pastor Evan, this is the week. This is the time when we need to do this. And so, so uh, we got to sing that song because that, that passage, in fact, there are certain passages of Scripture that have been put to song. And I don't know if you have this issue too, but there are some, some, some parts of Scripture that I can't read. I always end up singing them. And Isaiah 5 is one of those for me. I can't start reading Isaiah 5 without hearing the melody in my head. And... Um, um, we, 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 we opened with that this morning. We started with that because Jesus is going to be referring back to Isaiah 5 in the parable that he tells this morning that we're going to listen in on. There's, other, there's another image that, that he refers to it as well that we'll put those together, but we're going to be thinking about a vineyard this morning. And, um, but before we do, one of the things that Isaiah was confronting, one of the ways that the, that the fruit gets spoiled is one of the most helpful things for spiritual life can be a religious habit. Now, I know I say religious, and that's a turnoff often in our sort of stream of church, but think of that in terms of a spiritual habit, a devotion habit, a, a, a religious habit like daily reading God's Word, daily spending time in prayer. A, a weekly gathering together with others of like precious faith. These are the things that we do regularly, even by habit. And yet they are good for our spiritual life. And yet, one of the most dangerous things, it can be a deadening thing to our spiritual life, is a religious habit. That which becomes merely a habit, merely a rote practice, something we do and go through and we tick off the list. In fact, a couple of chapters ago in Luke, in chapter 18, two men prayed. And there's a vast difference between these two men who prayed. There's a Pharisee and a tax collector. And you'd think the Pharisee would know how to pray, but for him, his prayer was like a, a blanket thrown over him, deadening him, insulating him from relationship with God. On the other hand, there's a tax collector who prayed, and he prayed, God, be merciful, be propitiated. Lord, would somehow by your mercy be satisfied against my sins. Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. And that man went down from his prayer, justified, Jesus said. Two men prayed with two very different results. Two, in fact, the same religious habit with two very different outcomes. It's easy, well, apparently for the Pharisee, it's easy for us in religious habits to take our life with God for granted. To take even God for granted and what he should do, what we expect him to do. The passage before us this morning, I think, warns us about the danger of taking God for granted. Assuming what God would do and how we can then look out for ourselves in the midst of it. I'm going to start in Luke chapter 20. 
If you're, if you're following along in the church Bible, I encourage you to follow along. We're going to start in Luke chapter 20 and verse 1. You'll find it if you're using that church Bible on page 879. The first section we'll read just kind of basically sets us up. It, it gets us to this parable that we're going to spend most of our time on. But we'll go ahead and start there. One day, as Jesus was teaching the people in the temple and preaching the gospel, well, what else should Jesus do? He's teaching the people and preaching the gospel. The chief priests and the scribes with the elders came up and said to him, Tell us by what authority you are doing these things, teaching and preaching, or who it is that gave you this authority. He answered them, I also will ask you a question. Now tell me, was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? And they discussed it with one another, saying, Well, if we say from heaven, he will say, Why did you not believe him? But if we, if we say from man, well, all the people will stone us to death, for they are convinced that John was a prophet. So they answered, Well, they didn't know where it came from. And Jesus said to them, Neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. And that's a strange passage, isn't it? Who are these that come to ask Jesus this question? Why does Jesus not answer them directly? Why does he give them this roundabout way? And why do they refuse to answer that? But it's all related to where we're going. So let me try to summarize that quickly. First of all, the chief priests, the scribes, the elders of the nation, this refers to the Sanhedrin. This was the governing body of 70 people, 70 leaders, elders, rulers of Israel, Underneath the Romans' authority, they were given the right, the responsibility, to manage the Jewish affairs of the nation. They handled a lot of things themselves, only certain things did they need to default back to the Roman governor. When they wanted to actually execute Jesus, they had to go back to the Romans for that. But they managed, they handled, they exercised authority over a lot of the affairs, especially of Jewish religion and Jewish life. And so they were the custodians of the faith. They were the ones to authorize these elders of the nation. They were the ones to evaluate, was somebody a, a true prophet or a false prophet? Did they have the right to be a rabbi or not? Were they an authorized teacher or preacher? Or were they maybe, um, were they maybe somebody going rogue, somebody going off on their own who would lead others astray? That was their right. That was their responsibility under the authorities of the day. And so they come to this rabbi Jesus who is teaching and preaching the gospel. And they say, well, who said you could do that? Under whose authority do you do that? And, uh, well, Jesus doesn't want to answer them. No matter which answer he gives them, they're not going to like it, and they're going to use various tradition to, to try to tie him up in knots. Um, traditions around the Mishnah, rather than God's word, that the people assume are valid that Jesus doesn't follow. And so he says, well, okay. Because that's their right, that's their responsibility, he says, okay, you are the ones who are supposed to evaluate teachers of Israel, who's a false prophet, who's a true one. Well, let me ask you then, what did you conclude about John? John was a prophet. John was doing a lot of teaching, and John was saying some things that the Romans didn't like. So what do you say about John? Oh, they got a problem. If they say he's from God, they're going to have a problem with their Roman sponsors. If they say that he's merely from man, that John's baptism wasn't something 
to pay attention to, then the people are going to stone him because they believe that John was a prophet. The people are going to reject their own leaders. So they don't know what to do. They're stuck. And so Jesus says, well, then neither will I tell you where my authority comes from. But he's then going to go and tell the people. He doesn't answer to the elders because they're actually not carrying out their responsibility responsibly. They are asking a political question, trying to trap Jesus, just like they'll later do with the coin. They're trying to trap him and break, break his support among the people. That's what's going on here. And so Jesus actually points out the hypocrisy. They won't answer the question because it's politically loaded and they don't want to pay the political consequences of it. But the question is a good one. Whose authority are you under? That's what Jesus is actually going to turn around and ask them. Will they be under the authority of God's word or not? They set themselves up as the judges of Israel and even the judges of God's word. And yet, are they themselves willing to be under the authority of God's word? Testing those who claim to speak for God is important. When Paul was on his missionary journeys, he comes to the, comes to the city of Berea. And it is said that the Bereans were more noble in that they, they listened to Paul carefully, these things that he was saying from the Scriptures. And then they searched the Scriptures diligently, carefully, to see if these things were really so. Did God's Word actually say what Paul was saying that it said? They were commended for that. One of the reasons I give you a notes outline in your bulletin is so you can, you can jot some things down and go back and check them. Does the passage really say that, or was that just Bob's thing? I give you cross-references so you can see some of how these different passages fit together. And you can say, well, does that cross-reference really say that? Where did he get that from? Because it's good for us to use not somebody who's speaking, but God's word itself is the ultimate authority. Whose authority will we be under? But we too easily will put ourselves in the seat of judges of God's word, of critics of God's word. Does this or that part of it actually really apply to us? Should we pay attention to it? Will you let God's word judge you or will you be a critic of God's word? When the culture... And God's truth say two different things. Which one of those are you going to follow? We're going to have to make that choice in all kinds of areas, and it's only going to increase along the way. And one of the things that, that uh, this passage is going to point out for us, and it started already in this little episode about John, is we need to be under the authority of God's word. Jesus has called their bluff. And the, and the following parable is going to make clear, first of all, who he is, and who he gets his authority from. And once again, we're going to see Jesus ultimately appeal to Scripture itself. When they think he's gone too far, when they think he said more than could be true, his answer is, this is what God has said in his word. Jesus is going to make clear that he gets his authority from God himself, who is the owner of Israel. God who himself, who is the owner of his people, and as events unfold, they're going to do just what Jesus describes here as them doing. Let's pick it up in verse 9. 
He began to tell the people this parable. Now, he's been confronted by the rulers. He's been confronted by this body of rulers, probably a task team, who have been given the responsibility from the whole council of 70. The whole council, I don't think, showed up that day. I think they sent a task team, representatives from their body, who were given the responsibility to solve the Jesus problem. And so they go to check out Jesus, and they ask him the questions. They figure this should be easy. I mean, he's a, he's a rabbi from Galilee. We'll ask him, ask him some hard questions. We'll trip him up. We'll catch him in what he says, and problem solved. And so Jesus turns from them now, and he's, he returns to teaching the people, and he tells the people this parable. A man planted a vineyard. There's the song. And he let it out to tenants, and he went away into another country for a long while. When the time came, he sent a servant to the tenants so that they would give him some of the fruit of the vineyard, but the tenants beat the servant and sent him away empty-handed. We're going to keep it all for ourselves. And he sent another servant, but they also beat and treated him shamefully and sent him away empty-handed. And so they, he sent a, a third, and this one also they wounded and cast out. Now, in Isaiah chapter 5, we, we read and heard that passage said and sung that, that um, God planted a vineyard. That's the imagery that Jesus is pulling back on, and it's a passage that the people would be familiar with. It's a theme that has emerged again when Israel is longing for restoration, when Israel is longing for their deliverance. The same imagery pops up in Psalm 80. Now, Psalm 80, I think, is an exile song. It's a song where the people have been taken out of the land, into captivity, and they're longing for restoration. Let's take a look at some of the verses of Psalm 80. You brought a vine out of Egypt, you drove out the nations, the Canaanites, and you planted it. You cleared the ground for it, it took deep root, it filled the land. Why then have you broken down its walls, so that all who pass by along the way pluck its fruit? It's gone wild. Turn again, O God of hosts, look down from heaven and see, and have regard for this vine the stock that your right hand planted, and for the son whom you made strong for yourself. Oh, there's a hint to a son here that is going to enter the picture, but let's keep going. But let your hand be on the man of your right hand, the son of man whom you have made strong for yourself. Then we shall not turn back from you. Give us life, and we will call upon your name. In this psalm of restoration, it's a psalm that would still apply. They are now under Roman rule and Roman occupation and Roman dominance, and still they long to be delivered. And when God would come and establish his kingdom, and this son of man, in exile, prophecy, Daniel, restoration term, the deliverer, the Messiah, would come, and he would establish God's kingdom finally in his vineyard, and everything would be as it's supposed to be. So the vineyard is Israel, God's fruit-bearing people. In an analogy of of the vineyard being a, a covenant people bearing fruit for God, the tenant farmers would be the leaders of Israel. They would be the rulers who are responsible for managing the vineyard in God's absence. Is God absent? 
Is God an absentee owner, an owner who's gone away? Well, in a sense, yes. In the Babylonian captivity, before the Babylonian captivity, the presence of God, before Jerusalem could be taken, before the temple could be destroyed, the presence of God departs from the temple. It's described around about Ezekiel chapter 10. The presence of God leaves, and it goes out across the Kidron Valley and up the Mount of Olives and is gone. And Jesus, by the way, in just a week, is going to take that same path in his entry into Jerusalem. And the presence of God, once again, the presence of God in the person of Christ is going to re-enter Jerusalem, come down the Mount of Olives and across the Kidron Valley and in the Eastern Gate, and he's going to go straight to the temple. And there he's going to examine the spiritual heart of God's people. And there he's going to find the same corruption that caused God's presence to depart from them once before. And he's going to turn around and leave. So in a sense, yes, there is that sense of, a, of the owner of the vineyard is away, and yet the tenant farmers are responsible to care for the vineyard, to manage it as a stewardship given to it. To produce fruit within the vineyard. Now, the fruit for Israel would be to do justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God. To love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, strength. To love your neighbor as yourself. This would be the kind of fruit that should be growing and developing, produced among God's people. But it's not. One of the things that the tenant farmers... You see, this was a common imagery within the land that, that an owner of a large estate would not necessarily be the active farmer himself. He would lease out to tenant farmers. Think of it kind of like sharecropping, that each of them would be given a portion of the land that they were responsible for, and they were to farm the land, and in return they would give a certain amount of produce back to the landowner. Whatever they were able to produce beyond that, they could keep for themselves. So it would behoove them in that model for them to work hard, to farm well, to produce much fruit. They themselves would benefit from it. And the owner would be glorified by a very productive vineyard or farm that everybody around would know about. That's the model that's happening here. But these tenant farmers, they've forgotten the difference between stewardship and ownership. They are stewards of the vineyards. They are not the owners of it. And when the owner rightly, after a period of time, sends his servant to receive his share of the produce, they reject the servant. They're going to keep it all for themselves. They think they've become the owners. They're acting as if they own the vineyard rather than they are stewards of it. And so... He sends another servant, another servant. Who are the servants in the parable? The servants are God's prophets. Again and again, God sends his prophet. Now you think after the first messenger, they've already blown it. But he sends another. And they ignore God's prophet. And God, through biblical history, has sent his prophets to warn his people again and again and again and again. He sent Samuel to Saul and Nathan to David. And to the sons of David, he sends the prophets. And before the Assyrian captivity and invasion and then captivity, he sends prophets to warn them and turn them back, and they would not. After the Assyrian captivity, he sends prophets again, warning Judah to not follow in their steps and not continue in their rebellion 
so that they don't share the same fate, and yet they hear them not. Even in the midst of captivity, he sends Daniel's and Ezekiel's to declare his truth to a nation in captivity, to prepare them for restoration. After they're restored back into the lands, we have the post-exilic prophets, Habakkuk, um, Zechariah, and um, again, or Haggai. And, and, and Haggai, I think, is the, is the one prophet that the people actually listen to and respond to, and there's some fruit born out of it. But over and over again, God sends his servants, and yet they don't hear. And yet God continues. I mean, a second time, a third time, think of it. This owner is patient. He's long-enduring. Sometimes God seems away. And when God seems away, maybe you think you're on your own. God doesn't care, and it's up to you. You're going to have to make your own way. And you do some things that maybe wouldn't be the best choice if you knew that God is going to take care of you, but God seems to be away. I'm on my own here. And that might press you into taking care of things by yourself. Maybe sometimes when it seems that God's away that we think we can get away with. We can take these things for ourselves. We forget that we are mere stewards or managers, and we begin to act as if we are the owners of that which God has put into our care. Now, easily we can think of this in terms of money or property. We give a tithe because we give a portion. In fact, we would give a first fruit of that which we receive. We would devote that back to God as an expression that all that we have is His. He's only entrusted it into our hands. We, we use our property, we use our homes for hospitality because God has given us this and we use it then for His service, for His glory. In fact, Paul reminds the Corinthian church, what do you have that you did not receive? Whether in your treasure, whether in your properties, whether in your time or your talents, the giftings and abilities, God has given you these to be used in his purposes. We, in fact, are not our own. We've been bought with a price to glorify God with our bodies. And so, even when it comes to giving financially, there's a principle about giving money or giving self. It's described in, in 2 Corinthians chapter 8. 2 Corinthians chapter 8, let's put that up. For they gave, and Paul's here describing, there's an offering being taken for poor Christians in Jerusalem, those who, because of their faith in Jesus, they have been ostracized from Jewish society. They can't, they, they no longer can get jobs, they can't sell in the marketplace, they, they, they have very little sources of income. Their own families have cut them off. And they're on their own. And so the, the churches around the, around the empire are receiving an offering to take back to these Jewish Christians back in Jerusalem. And Paul says of this poor church in Macedonia, north in the, in the northern part of Greece, and he uses it as an example to the very wealthy church in Corinth that they should do something similar. He says, for these Macedonians, they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and above and beyond their means. They did this of their own accord. In fact, they begged us earnestly 
for the favor, for the privilege of taking part in this relief of the saints. Paul had perhaps assumed that these folks are barely getting by themselves. They really don't have the ability to give much. I'm not going to put this burden on them. Corinth should do this. They said, no, 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 let us participate. We want to participate. And this, verse 5 says, not as we expected, but they, here's the money line. They gave themselves first to the Lord and then by the will of God to us or to this giving project. First they gave themselves to the Lord. You see, the Lord does not want your 10%. The Lord wants you. When we think of stewardship versus ownership, it's a matter of like that story I told the kids. Give to Caesar what is Caesar's. Go ahead, pay your taxes. But give to God that which is God, that which has is his image on it. And we have been made in the image of God in order to devote ourselves to God. They gave themselves to God and then out of that, it was a matter of, Lord, what would you have us to do? It wasn't a matter of a percentage. It was a matter of a heart committed first to God or not. We are stewards or managers. We are not owner. That's about our resources. That's about our talents, our gifting and abilities. We serve one another as God's stewards of the grace of God, the gifting that he has given to us. It's an evil or lazy servant that does not... Remember that, remember that parable where God gives different amounts to different persons? Well, the, well, the master in the parable gives different amounts to different persons along the way. He goes away, he comes back, and the one wicked, lazy servant took his talent and he buried it in the ground. And I know talent is a coin. It's an amount of money, but I love the fact that it says talent there because it so, so, so easily bleeds over into English as the talents, the giftings, the abilities that God gives us. And there's an application to be made there, certainly. That God entrusts us as stewards of the giftings and the abilities that we have. We're going to vote in a couple of weeks about somebody who's serving in a particular role in a nominating team. And there are people all over the church that serve in various ways. People serving within this body and serving from here out into the community. Serving in ways that God has gifted you for his purposes. And his kingdom in the midst of this rebellious world. What has God put into your stewardship? Now and, now and again, it's a good time to take inventory, isn't it? What do I, ha what do I have? What has been trusted into my oversight? And how am I going to invest it? What am I going to do with that which has been put into my hands? Whether it's money. We've been given different amounts of money. Whether it's time, we're all given 24 hours every day. I know some of you are busier than others. Who say, I don't know, I got, I got this. We all have the same 24 hours a day. It's a matter of how we use it. What will you do with what you've been given? We've, if you have faith in Christ, you've been given a testimony. As you walk with the Lord and you experience his goodness, you experience his rescue and his help in time of need. And there's a testimony in that. And what will you do with that testimony? Will you keep it and cherish it yourself? Or will you share it with others that they might be encouraged in the goodness of God as well? What will we do with what we've been given? Well, 
they got confused between ownership and stewardship. And they rejected the servants. They cast them out. They said, we're going to keep this, this stuff for ourselves. And then the owner of the vineyard said, what shall I do? I know I will send my beloved son. Perhaps they will respect him. What shall I do? Here Jesus brings the listeners into the dilemma. He brings them into the story for them to consider. Indeed, what would God do? What should he do? Why, he should come after those bums. He should throw them out and string them up. That's what God should do, right? You can feel it. You can agree with it. Man, God needs to deal with this. But look how much more patient and gracious God is than we would expect or even imagine. God says, what should I do? Ah, this is it. He knows what he's going to do. All along, he already knows what he's going to do. We just have a hard time believing it. He says, I will send my beloved son. What's the track record here? Are we thinking that because the son is the son, surely they'll respect him? Well, the, the maybe is ex expressed in a perhaps. That's not the confidence. He's not doing this because he thinks, well, the servants, okay, maybe they didn't hear the servants, but if I send my son, they'll have to because he has authority as an owner under me as the heir of the property. They can't ignore him. No, he says perhaps. God already knows when he sends his son what's going to happen. Jesus has been telling his disciples he's going to be rejected, arrested, crucified, and rise again. So the owner is not unaware of what's going to happen to the son when he sends him, and yet he sends him. I think it's the owner, God, is giving a last best opportunity, a last best chance for them to repent of their rebellion. They have been wrong in rejecting the servants, but when the son comes, what should they do? One more chance, one last chance that they would repent if they reject the son. There's no other recourse. This is the last best chance for them to receive God's mercy. We can rejoice in God's mercy and patience. Look how merciful God is. Maybe you're hearing this this morning. You know, we away for three weeks and new faces pop up. I don't know some of you. I don't know all of your story. Maybe you're here this morning and this is your last best chance. We never know, none of us, how many opportunities we're going to get to hear of and receive God's Son as Savior. Maybe this is that last best chance for you to believe in Him, to receive God's forgiveness that is in His Son, Jesus, who died in our place. How many more invitations will God give you? Maybe this is a confrontation time, a reminder of you as a steward, not an owner, that what have you been doing with what you've been given? And this story is, is God's best chance for you to hear and to respond. And rather judging and rejecting the word to be critiqued by the word and to soften and yield our hearts to hear it. Will they rejoice in God's mercy and patience, or will they reject it? What happens in verse 14? When the, penance, when the tenants saw him, they said to themselves, ah, This is the heir. Let's kill him. Really? Let's kill him so that the inheritance may be ours. And they threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. What then will the owner of the vineyard do to them? 
He will come and destroy those tenants and give the vineyard to others. When they heard this, they said, surely not. That can't happen. The people are saying, no, that can't be. But he looked directly at them and he said, what then is this that is written? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces, and when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. Now the scribes and the chief priests sought to lay hands on him at that very hour, for they perceived that he had told the parable against them. They're the wicked tenants. They're the rebellious tenants who have taken over the vineyard for themselves and who have ignored the servants that were sent, who have not listened to the prophets when they came, and who would reject even God's Son and kill him, thinking that then they could take the vineyard for themselves. Now, first of all, they know. They know who Jesus is. Did you get that? They know he is a teacher sent from God. They know he fits the picture, the description of Messiah who is to come. They know who he is, and they think if they get rid of him, they will be free from God, and they can have it their way. Well, God is not so easily put off, by the way. But there's no innocence of ignorance here. It's not that, well, they just didn't know. If only they'd known. If only God had somehow shown them. No, God has shown them himself very clearly. God has translated the, the Godhead into humanity so that they could see him. And they have rejected him. What twisted sense of entitlement would make them to think if they get rid of the son, then the vineyard would now be yours? Whether in the story or in reality. In the story, you kill off the owner's son and you think you're going to be given the vineyard. What kind of a strange sense of self-centered entitlement would bring you to that conclusion? Well, it's probably the same kind of foolishness that would cause you to think, I will ignore God's Son, Jesus, and I can then live as I please and get away with it. You may live as you please. You will not get away with it. None of us do. All of us will be accountable. Well, they might be assuming that it, the only reason the Son has come you see, they're not over wherever the owner is. They don't know what's happening there. They only see who comes to them. Three servants have come, and now the owner's son comes. Maybe they're thinking, the servants came, and now the son comes because the owner is dead. And so there's nobody to own the vineyard if we kill the son, if we kill the heir. And so what are the authorities going to do? Well, as long as they don't discover that we are the ones who murdered him, then maybe the vineyard, the property, will fall to those who are occupying it and farming it at present. There's nobody else to give it to. What are they going to do? Well, first of all, they're wrong. Rome would probably just take it for themselves. There's a corrupt official somewhere that's going to acclaim it, right? What kind of selfish, self-blinding entitlement would cause them to think that this is going to work? We do the same thing in our own self-short-sightedness. Uh, when we think, I can get away with this. But don't take God for granted. You see, what they would clearly be missing here is God is not dead. He is very much alive. And though the nations rage, God will set his king, Psalm 2 says, on his holy hill of Zion. God is always going to get his way. No matter 
how the nations rage. Don't Don't test God's patience. One of the results of God's patient, long-enduring, long-suffering with them, he sent servant after servant to warn them. He sends his own son, and even him they reject. One result of this patient playing out of this whole process is that God is shown to be just in all of his ways, even ultimate judgment. What else could God do? God will be just, even in his judgment. There's no one that will stand before God one day and say, but God, that's not fair. They will know themselves that God has been more than fair. He's been gracious. He's been merciful. And they denied it. They pushed him away. There are two important points to take out of this last section. First of all, in verse 17, Jesus says, when the the people say, no, surely that can't happen. We're not sure what they're saying, surely that can't be, too. By Jesus' response, it's one of two things. Either, either they say, no, our leaders would never actually reject the Messiah itself, himself. When the Messiah comes, our leaders wouldn't reject him. Surely they'd never go that far. We know they're not that great. We know they're a bit corrupt. We don't really trust them ourselves, but they'd never try that. Surely that can't be. And yet Jesus says, well, why then? Does the scripture say the stone that the builders rejected is the one that has become the cornerstone? The one who is Messiah is the one who will be rejected. That's what the scripture says. Or maybe they're recoiling at the notion of the severity of the judgment that God will come and destroy and will give the vineyard to others. Surely God will not give the vineyard of Israel to others. Well, he's done it before. He's expelled them out of the land. He's put others in in its place. And he's going to do it again in A.D. 70. But he, but he says to them in reply that there is judgment, there is accountability with God, that everyone who, who falls on that stone, who stumbles at that stone, will be broken. And when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. There is a time when judgment will come. But notice what Jesus does here. When, they don't, when they're not sure that what he said in his parable could be true, he goes back to Scripture. You see, God will always do what God says he will do. You can count on it. Now that's serious in terms of judgment, but that is good news in terms of forgiveness, isn't it? That is good news in terms of restoration. That is good news for God's comfort. That is good news for God's care. That is good news for God's provision in time of need because even though you look around at your circumstances and situation and you don't know how you're going to get through this, you don't know how God is going to deliver you, but he says that as his eye is on the sparrow and he watches over you. He knows your need. And he will care for you. You are worth more than a few birds, Jesus said. And you are. And what God has said, God will do. That's what Jesus is saying here in answer to their unbelief. You see, in Isaiah chapter 8, one more passage I want to put on the screen. Isaiah chapter 8 and verse 13. The Lord of hosts, him you shall honor as holy. Let him be your fear. Let him be your dread. And he will become a sanctuary as well as a stone of offense or a rock of stumbling to both houses of Israel. 
He will be a sanctuary or a refuge and a stone to stumble over. That's what Simeon said to Mary when Jesus was born and brought to the temple. That they would be the cause of the rise and the fall of many in Israel. Which will he be? Your refuge or your obstacle? Verse 17 is the answer. I will wait for the Lord. Who is hiding his face from the house of Jacob, but I will hope in him. Even in the midst of my difficult, troubled circumstances now, I don't see God's working yet, but I will hope in him. He will be my refuge. He will be my sanctuary. You know, where Psalm 2 speaks of the raging of humanity against God and his purposes, and yet God will set his king. Nobody can stop him. You know how the psalm closes? An invitation to kiss the king. An invitation to come to him, to receive him. You know, there was a coronation just yesterday, wasn't there? Long live King Charles, they said. Well, not only that, voices all over, his, all over England said within their heart, oh, God save the king. Really. And part of that coronation ceremony, they changed it. Normally there was a loyalty of the peers pledge. Those who had official standing and recognition, the nobility class within the United Kingdom would pledge their allegiance to the new monarch. But they changed that because Charles wanted to give everybody, not only who was present, but everybody, regardless of their standing, everybody all around the world, anybody who was watching on TV, did you watch? Probably not. Some of you did. Well, you had the opportunity as you watched, even on TV, to recite a loyalty oath to King Charles. And I hope you didn't do that as good American citizens. But I digress. That's something of the way the Psalm 2 closes. Receive the king. Embrace God's kings. You know the closing line? Blessed are those who take refuge in him. I don't think you can say that about Charles. But you can say that about God's king, Jesus. Has this stone which the builders rejected, has this stone become your cornerstone? That's what we remember as we come to this table. Let's put Psalm 118 up on the screen just to get that before us. This psalm that Jesus has been referring to, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. It's the foundation upon which everything else stands. It is unmovable. This is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. This is the day, even the day of his death. The day when Jesus gives his body, pours out his blood, this is the day that the Lord has made. We will rejoice and be glad in God's salvation at the cost of his son. Save us, we pray, O oh Lord. Give us success. God, prosper us. God, help us. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. What did Jesus tell them? You won't see me from here onward, until you also say, blessed is he, Jesus, the Son, who comes in the name of the Lord, Yahweh. In Acts chapter 4, in verse 11, Peter is going to stand before this same Sanhedrin, this same ruling council in Israel. 
And they're going to ask him and John, by what authority do you say these things? Who do you think you are? Who said you could preach like this and stir up trouble against us like this? And Peter answers him this way. The same Peter who denied Jesus before answers this way. This Jesus is the stone rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. Jesus is our cornerstone. Jesus is the rock, the foundation of our salvation. And when we come to this table, that's what we're remembering. I'm going to invite those who are serving to come forward. As we come to this table, this table is for those who believe, those who can say, yes, Jesus is my cornerstone. If you believe in Jesus as your Savior, we invite you. I don't know if you're a member of this church or not, but if you believe in Jesus as your Savior, we invite you to participate in the table with us. We will distribute first the bread, and then we'll partake together, then the cup, and we'll partake together. And maybe, I know there are times in the midst of a service like this, a, a, a communion table like this, that this is a time to be personally confronted with the reality of Jesus' death for you. We pass it from one to another. We take it individually because that's how God's salvation is received. And maybe this, in this perhaps best chance, where you heard again that Jesus loved you, that God sent his son when it seemed a crazy thing to do. And you this morning have said, God, I believe you concerning Jesus, your son. That he came as my savior to die in my place for my guilt, to take the penalty of my sin and my rebellion that I could be forgiven and restored into right relationship with you. God, I believe you concerning Jesus. If that's your prayer this morning, then we invite you to join us at this table. We're going to, as we distribute, we're going to take the time during the passing of the bread to just have an opportunity for you to reflect, to pray. It's a time to rejoice in his forgiveness, to remember his forgiveness, to claim for that easily besetting sin, to claim again his forgiveness. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this table. Because we thank you for Jesus. We thank you for our salvation that is not in these elements, but it's in Jesus who died for us and rose again. Because our debt has been paid. Our sins have been removed. They've been put away. They've been forgiven. Father, we thank you for that. Lord, let us use this time now as an opportunity to cleanse our heart of any lingering guilt, to purge any doubts of our acceptance before you, to confess our sin knowing that you are faithful and just to not only forgive our sins, but also cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So, Father, hear our confessions now. And, Lord, cleanse our hearts. Renew us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.